Good morning, my name is uh, Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leewood campus at Christ Community. I hope you sense Christ's welcome here. Um, this morning's message you probably picked up is a little bit different. I'm going to be talking about a subject that, uh, well, there are a few subjects in our day um, that are more polarizing than the subject of homosexuality and gay marriage. Our culture has moved very fast in this. There's been a big shift taking place, and if you are following a lot of the things that are going on, the Supreme Court is soon to decide, the Supreme Court, uh, about the law of the land regarding gay marriage, and most observers of the court say that um, they will rule in favor of gay marriage throughout our land. So the question I'd like to raise first is, has the church gotten wrong homosexuality? Has it gotten homosexuality wrong? And let me say right away, yes and no. Far too often, the church has failed to demonstrate Christ-like love to many fellow image bearers of God who experience same-sex attraction, and we have at times, as God's people, contributed to the marginalization and abuse of those precious image image bearers who have same-sex attraction. I must say up front that many, including myself, have been quick to throw self-righteous stones at fellow image bearers of God who experience same-sex attraction. And at the same time, in our own hypocrisy, we have minimized our own heterosexual brokenness and sin. I, for one, have had to do over the years a lot of soul-searching, and a lot of repentance. And I continue to learn a great deal from many of my friends who experience same-sex attraction. Some of them identify with the gay community. Yes, there are some things the church has gotten wrong, very wrong, with homosexuality. Where we have gotten it wrong, both for what we have done and left undone, We need a posture of humble repentance. Has the church gotten homosexuality wrong? The answer is a resounding yes, but also a resounding no. Homosexual practice and gay marriage are incompatible with the clear teaching of Scripture and the church for over 2,000 years. Now again, while the church has failed to love others, In far too many cases, there are also many, many examples of churches who honor what the Scriptures clearly teach, and churches who continue to bear witness to God's design and Christ's love by loving their fellow neighbors of all stripes and kinds of all brokenness. And it is my hope and prayer that Christ's community as a church can be that sort of church. Now, let me say also in preparation for my message You may disagree with me on that position. I came out with it right away. And I respect that. I respect it if you do not see the Bible's teaching as authoritative. The 66 books of the Christian canon are not authority for you. Now, I'd like to persuade you otherwise. I mean, let's be honest. I'm a pastor who loves this book. I believe that this book is inspired by God, inerrant in its original autographer, 
and is transformational for all who read it and for the common good of human flourishing because it reflects God's desire and design for his created world. But I do respect your position if you do not hold that at all to the Bible. But what I do not respect are teachers or pastors or scholars who distort the Bible's clear ethical teaching in this regard and somehow suggest through innuendo or sleight-of-hand language that homosexual practice within a loving monogamous relationship may be or could be or is compatible with the Bible. Let me be very clear, it is not. No more so than heterosexual practice outside the covenant of marriage, whether that be premarital sex or adultery or cyber sex or pornography, or sex with a prostitute, and we could give a longer list. Let me just say, too, if you're a guest here this morning, you might be thinking, good grief, what did I get into? (laughs) Well, let me just assure you, I hope in a non-defensive posture, but an authentic one, that we are not on some sexual crusade at Christ's community. No soapbox. But as a church family, we are going through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter of canonical scripture. Because at Christ's community, we think so important is to honor the integrity of each of the biblical author's words. We follow the text where the author leads us. I said this last week, I need to say it again, because at Christ's community, we seek to teach the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we like or may like or may not like. We do not pick and choose here. We do not give our opinion of what we think the authors might have meant, but rather we respect the long tradition of the interpretation of Scripture and the literary integrity of the biblical authors in their original autographer and language through grammar and syntax and morphology. We seek to convey the intention of the authors as they have spoken in their original language. This is the integral position of teaching the Bible, and we are deeply committed to it. Let me also say this message is for everyone. The most important person who hears this message is me. But I trust all of us need to hear this message because all of us are sexually broken. Some of us here experience same-sex attraction, Many of us here know. And we love deeply others in our family or friends or neighbors or colleagues or classmates who are same-sex attracted or living a gay lifestyle. There are just a lot of emotions, are there not? There are a lot of questions in our minds, including mine. Let me say to you, some of us here may be angry this morning. You may be angry because you're demanding unqualified acceptance of homosexual practice in the church. Or because you are demanding unqualified condemnation for those who experience same-sex attraction. And let me just say right up front, Either way, you're going to be disappointed with what I have to say. Because the gospel gives us a third way 
That is, neither affirmation of homosexual practice or condemnation of same-sex attraction, rather new identity in Christ. So all of us need repentance. And all of us need the hope that the gospel brings to each of us. So I'm ready to begin my message. But let's pray and ask God that we're all ready to hear it. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of each one of our hearts be accepted with you. Grant each one of us attuned ears to listen carefully and grant your servant precision in language. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you brought your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Last week, if you were here, or if you're not here, let me set the context of these messages. We're exploring chapter 6. Last week, we explored the three bedrock pillars or truths that make up the foundation of a coherent and compelling Christian sexual ethic. We looked last week that a sexual ethic is not primarily, I'm not dismissing what we do, but it's not primarily what we do or not do not do. It is primarily built on who we are and most primarily built on whose we are. This is where Paul leads us at the end of chapter 6. Last week we looked at these three foundational truths and we said, first of all, the text teaches us that we are more than our desires. Secondly, we are more than just ourselves. And third, we are more than what we see. So Paul builds to an Literary crescendo in chapter 6, and he says basically this. He says, Corinthians, followers of Jesus, you don't belong to you. The body you and I inhabit is owned by God. And he says, as Christians, then the implications is that we flee porneia. That's the Greek word that frames Christian sexual ethics. It's the Greek word used by Paul that connotes, hear me carefully, any sexual involvement or practice outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Male and female, we are to glorify God in our bodies. That's where Paul ends this chapter. Now, as we look more closely at this text, as well as other texts, I want to consider two crucial questions that I think are vital for all of us to ask and think through. First is this, what does the Bible teach about homosexual practice? And secondly, how should we respond to our fast-changing cultural understanding of homosexuality and homosexual practice? First question, what does the Bible teach about homosexual practice? Here in chapter 6, notice in verses 9 through 11, in the midst of a list of sins of brokenness, not isolated, not highlighted, but centered in a group of sins or vices that describe human brokenness and our need for a Savior to rescue us, Paul gives us a very significant teaching about homosexual practice. And notice the context is to say, this is who you were before. When you embrace the gospel, this is now who you are. So in the midst of this, we see both our brokenness and the brilliant ray of hope. I want you to see that. We are sinners saved by grace. Now, Paul employs two Greek words here in, verses, in verse 9. And the ESV Bible translates these two Greek words into one phrase. That is, men who practice homosexuality. The NIV Bible 
reflects the actual structure of the two words and gives us two connecting phrases that are semantically linked. And that is, the NIV, if you have it open or have it with you, says this, male prostitutes or homosexual offenders. Now, it's important to know that in the biblical translations that are tied to the text, the idea here is males who take other males to bed. So hear me carefully and precisely. In other words, Paul is talking about homosexual behavior. Paul is very aware in the Greco-Roman world of the widespread homosexual practice of his day. And he speaks specifically here about same-sex practice, not same-sex attraction. He will do this again in another list with continuity in similar language in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. And if you want to, you can take some notes and follow up more with these texts later. Now, let me say something that needs to be said because of so much distortion. Many people today are quick to dismiss Paul. They dismiss Paul's teaching by an ad hominem argument against him as a person, that he is, well, a backwater rabbi in the first century. He is ignorant, he's bigoted, he's homophobic, and you can list all those names. The problem of that is, in multiple ways, is Paul is anything but all that. The facts of history show otherwise. Let me just give you just a glimpse of this extraordinary human being. Paul grew up in Tarsus. It was a cosmopolitan Greco-Roman city known for its high learning, particularly in the university there, of Stoic philosophy. The Apostle Paul, who was then Saul, was sent by his father to Jerusalem to study under the leading rabbi in the world, Gamaliel. Paul was a Roman citizen as a Jewish guy, which set him in the elite elite of his culture. Not only that, Paul was multilingual. He was fluent in Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and most likely Aramaic, which is the derivative language of Hebrew. If you read and study and translate his writings in the original language, you begin to see the brilliance of his literary prowess. Galatians 1.12 tells us, Paul is very clear and humbly, he says that once he was converted to Christ, when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he spent three years in study in Arabia. Many of those moments, he says, Christ specifically revealed truth to him, the resurrected Christ. Wow. And let's not forget that Paul was part of a grand Jewish tradition, a grand rabbinic tradition, centered in the narrative of the Old Testament, of which he knew cold and memorized. The teaching at 1 Corinthians 6 reflects the consistent and coherent worldview of this seamless and deep rabbinical narrative. It is a narrative that is clear and compelling and consistent and coherent in its articulation of God's design for human sexuality. So let's begin where the Bible begins. It's important for us when we use the word Old Testament, New Testament, which is a common language to think of first covenant, second covenant, because old is not, is not, does not mean it's old and outdated. The old from our English tradition is it's built the first one that the second one is built on, Okay? So let's begin where the Bible begins. And let me say just a word on this. To speak of a biblical sexual 
ethic, with any degree of intellectual integrity or theological credibility, we must begin with Genesis 1 and 2. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we are given an account of creation of the material world, including humankind. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, we read these words. So let's listen to them carefully. These are foundational. Then God said, let us make man or humankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every cre- over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The foundational story or foundational narrative of Genesis and the whole Bible is centered here. And that is that what we see is that God created humankind distinct from all creation as his image bearers. And with that image bearing of the triune God, there is male-female gender distinction. A more fuller expression of that is in Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, when Eve is formed, after Adam, the Hebrew word ezer comes in as the helper. And right next to it is the Hebrew language that makes this connect. A helper that, in English we use this word, corresponds to Adam. Very important connection. What the Hebrew text teaches is that in God's original design, there is male-female complementarity at all levels of existence. Body, soul, spirit, and and the physical uh, aspect of one's anatomy, the anatomical fit. Male and female complementarity is further reinforced in the Hebrew text by the description uh, Adam gives of his wife when he adds a hey ending on the Hebrew, which is the feminine ending, ish, isha. So the text is compellingly clear in Genesis 1 and 2 that there is male-female complementarity in God's creation design. Now this makes sense because when we get to chapter end of chapter 2, when marriage is instituted, there is a coming together of oneness in a complementary union, body, soul, mind, and spirit. And here we have the foundation of the biblical sexual ethic. In other words, creation design means that first and foremost, gender identity is biologically determined with anatomical validation. It is not individually or socially constructed. Now, when we hit Genesis 3, of course, there's massive disintegration of God's design in every dimension. And human flourishing begins a downward spiral, does it not? Very fast. Sexual brokenness takes a myriad of forms in the Old Testament. We see it. The Bible doesn't gloss over it. You see same-sex attraction uh, evidence there. And most likely, don't explicitly, but there's probably incidences or hints of gender dysphoria, which means an experience that people have that's very real, that have a certain biological anatomy, but have a psychological understanding of their gender that's different. The story of both humankind's brokenness and God's restorative plan of redemption now unfold in the Old Testament. And we see both, both this downward spiral and this upward plan of hope in redemption. So once we enter back into this narrative that Paul is speaking on, giving a midrash, a commentary as a rabbi in 1 Corinthians 6, we understand the flow. So let's look at some of those seminal main texts in the Old Testament that set this tradition first. In Genesis 9, 20 through 27, 
Again, you can write these down and look at these later. We read the account of Noah getting drunk. Um, and the account doesn't explicitly use the Hebrew idea of homosexual practice, but it is very much a part of this narrative. Because Noah is drunk, and Ham, his son, looks, this is the euphemism, looks at the nakedness of his father. It's not just that Ham sees his dad naked. The context, the curse of that seeing his dad, right, the severe curse, if you look at the story, shows that there was some kind of behavior that was homosexual in nature. It's not explicit, but it's very much a part of that story. Secondly, in Genesis 19, verses 4 through 11, we have, uh, you know, these are very difficult stories to read. They show the brokenness of humanity, right? You, you have the attempted, at least attempted, the Hebrew is not exactly clear here, but it looks like it's at least the attempted, if not actual, homosexual rape of Lot's male house guest in Sodom. Now, the revulsion of the biblical writer about the story, the portrayal of human brokenness, centers around three moral codes, not just one. First, in Semitic worlds, to uh, have that kind of inhospitality was unthinkable. So it violates the hospitality of the moral code. Secondly, it violates homosexual practice. And third, it violates violence or rape. So all three of those are woven into that account. The third text, equally gruesome text, uh, not good nighttime reading, Judges 19, 22 through 25. And here you have a group of men who seek to rape another male who is a guest in someone else's house. When we look at Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, we find what is called the holiness or purity codes and they are specifically given to an emerging nation of Israel uh, to reflect the holiness of God and the redemptive work that God is going to bring to the nations ultimately through the Messiah. So in both Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, we find a very clear imperatival proscription against homosexual practice. The consequence of that proscription is severe, and it shows the severity of that practice. What I want to say, and hope you hear carefully, is that the Old Testament consistently presents homosexual practice in a very negative light. And it places consistently homosexual practice outside the bounds of God's creation design of sexual involvement reserved for male-female complementarity within the covenant bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. So what about the New Testament? How do we understand the New Testament teaching? Remember, the New Testament is the second, or it builds on the first. What we see here, as this should not surprise us, is there is an ex- a, a remarkable continuity, not discontinuity with the Old Testament in a sexual ethic. We have already highlighted the consistency of Paul's teaching, right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I touched on briefly 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, but primarily the main text is uh, the elucidated text is Romans 1, 24 through 27, Paul's letter to the Romans. And here, if you look at it, Paul speaks about idolatry and same-sex practice as clear examples of the suppression of truth that is available to every human being regardless of their accessibility to the Bible. In other words, through natural law and through creation. And that's his point. So what about Jesus? Lots of questions about Jesus important questions about Jesus in this matter. Do we have any indication that Jesus taught on homosexuality in the canonical text? 
of Holy Scripture? The answer is yes and no. I'm not being smug, but it's important to hear that. The answer is no if we mean any recorded explicit reference to the word for homosexuality in Hebrew or Greek. The answer is yes, though, if we understand the rabbinical tradition Jesus strongly affirmed and the explicit teaching we have of Jesus that affirmed Genesis 1 and 2 and male-female complementarity and heterosexual marriage. Now, if you look at the text carefully, Jesus not only strongly affirmed, Rabbi Jesus, the Old Testament teaching, what we often miss is he raised the bar of sexual purity. We often miss that. Jesus, in his day, many rabbis had dismissed and made the liberalization, I'm not saying liberal in a pejorative way, but the broad understanding of Deuteronomy as that a guy could divorce his wife for just about anything. And some of the rabbinical uh, writings are that uh, the wife burned toast. That's how bad it was. So it was an abuse of the text. Jesus raises the bar when they ask about marriage and divorce. And it's interesting to me that he not only raises that bar, he raises it in terms of sexuality itself. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you can look at Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, that to lust, a thought, was a violation of adultery, not just the actual adultery of the Ten Commandments. This is called a midrash. He gives a commentary on the Old Testament, and he raises the bar of any thought. Ouch. Jesus said, to lust after another was to commit adultery before a holy God. Wow. Jesus raises the bar. Jesus challenged a loosey-goosey idea of sexual purity and raised it. It's important for us to grasp this because you often hear people talk about Jesus didn't speak on homosexuality. The Bible's teaching is clear, consistent, and compelling that homosexual practice is outside the bounds of a Christian sexual ethic. Now, why am I stating that so bluntly? The reason I am and repeating that is because there's so much confusion and faulty ideas and erroneous arguments that would suggest or insinuate or some kind of innuendo that the Bible's teaching is somehow compatible with homosexual practice. Now, there are many of those. Let me address four of them that are errant and faulty. First, the first error we hear a lot is that Jesus did not teach on homosexual practice. Therefore, the implication or conclusion is it is morally acceptable for Christians. Now, I've already unpacked some of the weakness of that argument But let me just go from a logic standpoint, an argument of silence is extremely weak. And I've already made the point, and I hope you heard it, that Jesus' explicit silence about homosexuality as we have it in canonical scripture does not connote Jesus' implicit silence. Jesus speaks loudly to this issue if we have ears to hear it. To insinuate that Jesus would affirm homosexual practice is ignorant at best and deceptive at worst. The second error is this. We often hear that Paul's prohibition was really about sexual promiscuity and not homosexuality per se. 
The idea here is often expressed or asserted that Paul is focusing on exploitative and not consensual practice between a monogamous arrangement of homosexuality. This distinction between exploitative and consensual, hear me carefully, is deeply flawed. Paul was very aware of a variety of homosexual practices. We know that from extra-biblical literature, art. Paul understood the variety of relationships and arrangements in the first century of homosexuality, even monogamous ones. He knew monogamous ones, he knew of them, he knew non-monogamous, he, knew ex- he had seen exploitative, he had seen consensual, and Paul doesn't make any distinction as to the motivation of the homosexual practice or the arrangement of the practice, but to its actual practice. This fits Leviticus 20.13. Paul is right in step. The penalty of death was both for participants in this practice in this context, and it was both for the exploited as well as the exploiter. So Paul's prohibition against homosexual practice is absolute and as absolute in this context as his injunctions against other things too, friends. Adultery, and here in this earlier context, incest, which he has a revulsion toward in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The third error that is common, we hear, is the early church changed its view about a lot of things in the Old Testament, like dietary laws and kosher and what you eat. And this is the same thing, like it would be homosexual practice today. In other words, you hear that loving monogamous homosexual practices is similar to a kosher kind of understanding, a cultural adjustment the church needs to make in our time. Now, this may seem plausible and attractive, but there is a fundamental logical and theological error to this assertion. I don't have time to unpack the logical, but let me point out very quickly the brazen theological error with that idea. This idea is often promoted out of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, when a very Jewish kosher Peter had this vision of what now is clean and unclean. And this vision, Peter is given the sense that now With Christ coming, there are things that are now clean that were viewed as unclean. And the argument is, that's true in many cultural dynamics. This homosexual practice is a cultural dynamic, not a creation dynamic. The problem with that is right when you go to Acts chapter 15, verse 29, when the Jerusalem council decided what was to be left behind for Jewish people, it was just for Jewish people, and for Gentile Christians, what was the church to be about? Four things were continuous from the Old Testament. One of them is explicitly porneia. The Jewish and Gentile believers who came to Christ, the church was consistent to uphold the Christian sexual ethic. Just a couple chapters later. The fourth error is often described as that homosexuality is genetically determined. And along with that, the argument is Not only a genetic determination, but a biblical ignorance. In other words, the writers of the Bible did not know about that. They were just ignorant of it. There's much I could say here, but for time, let me just say a few things. What we know at this point from scientific and sociological research is that same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria and a list of sexual differences is a combination of many complex and interacting factors. 
Theologically, though, our genetic factors not only reflect our original design, but they also reflect the corruption of that design, do they not? Sin and the brokenness it brings from Genesis 3, Genesis 3 on that enters our life and your life and my life has direct genetic implications. This genetic argument uh, is increasingly dismissed by people almost in every camp on this issue because it's so weak. And yet on the street, people talk about a gay gene or what if a gay gene is found? Well, first of all, it hasn't been found, but the idea is whether it's found or not or however it's determined really is not a good argument. The genetic idea that certain kinds of behavior are prescriptive in the gene, like skin, color, is a faulty logic. Biological genetic prescription and biological behavior influence are different. This is why this argument is so specious often when people tie in skin color of someone's skin and someone's sexual attraction and bring this together when it's not, but it's very persuasive. There are many factors at play. It's a complex reality. We all have predispositions, whether they are genetic or environmental or a combination of things or our past or abuse. In many areas, it can be addictions, it can be gambling, it can be a bunch of things. But none of us are given the freedom biblically to dismiss our moral responsibility in self-control over these dispositions. Jesus taught us that our desired, or our dis disordered desires lead us to rationalize and justify my brokenness and your brokenness and the evil deeds I do and the evil deeds you do. You do. Whether those evil deeds or words are slander or greed or pride or sexual practice. John 3 Jesus said it so powerfully. He says, men, humankind, love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. Like many other sins, the Bible speaks with a clear and consistent voice that homosexual practice is outside the bounds of a Judeo-Christian sexual ethic. But the Bible doesn't just speak about the sin within us. It gives us tremendous hope of healing and acceptance. So second question, how should we respond to our culture's fast-changing understanding here? Let me suggest three things. I would like you to write these down on a piece of paper or even more in your heart. First, we need to respond with greater humility. Instead of stone-throwing self-righteousness, apprentices of Jesus are called to pick up the basin and towel of sacrificial service for others, to be a people of grace and truth, to love those around us, with a growing Christ-like humility. And a growing Christ-like humility brings a listening ear, a teachable and tender heart to every image bearer that is intrinsically valuable before God. Secondly, we need greater understanding. Many of us in this room are woefully ignorant about fellow image bearers who experience same-sex attraction. And dear friends, because of our woeful ignorance. We embrace such damaging stereotypes and speak in ways and with language that is hurtful and unloving and ungodly. Most of us need to listen better. Most of us need to read more widely and cultivate a teachable attitude. 
and we must guard against cultural insularity that breeds ignorance and suspicion. Same-sex attraction is a wide dynamic range in people's lives as they experience it. Some image bearers are attracted to both sexes, some exclusively to one sex. Some see themselves as having a gay identity. Others see themselves as a wounded gay activist seeking redress in a victim narrative. There's a wide range of people. And I'm going to suggest three resources that I believe are really valuable for you and me to gain gain greater understanding. I think we have a slide of this that's helpful. And you can come up here after the service if you want to look more at them. The first one is The Bible and Homosexual Practice by Dr. Robert Gagnon. It is by far the best and superior work on what the Bible teaches. It's thick, it's powerful, and if you want to uh, have greater confidence in what the Bible teaches, Dr. Gagnon, uh, this is by far the finest work ever written on this subject, okay, in terms of the Bible. Dr. Mark Yarhouse is a wonderful psychologist. It's a book called Homosexuality and the Christian. It gives you a broader understanding. Since People who have sexual brokenness in this area are a small percentage of the population. Most of us have no understanding what it's like. What it's like for people to experience this thing or the thing is wrong. This reality in their life. So Dr. Yarhouse helps Christians understand the complexity and the challenges of what it's like for this kind of sexual brokenness. Another great book is Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. Dr. Wesley Hill is a devoted follower of Jesus who experiences same-sex attraction. It's called Washed and Waiting. And he highlights the call to a life of spiritual friendship and celibacy as an apprentice of Jesus. It is an outstanding book in so many ways. And what is so important is he gives us an understanding since many of us, just because of statistics, don't experience this. We experience other kinds of ungodly sexual brokenness. And he gives us an understanding what it's like. And he writes these words. There was nothing, he says, it felt chosen or that felt chosen or intentional, intentional about my being gay. It seemed more like noticing the blueness of my eyes and deciding I would take up skiing. There was never an option, do you want to be gay? And me saying, yes, I do, please. It was a gradual coming to terms, not a conscious resolution. Wesley Hill, again, hear me carefully, does not dismiss the possibility of true change in orientation through the power of the gospel, but transparently, he says through his own experience, these words, he says, a sexual orientation is such a complex and in most cases, it seems an intractable thing for us. He says, I cannot imagine what healing from my orientation would look like given that it seems to manifest itself not only in physical attraction to male bodies, but also in preference for male company with all that entails, such as tender conversation and emotional intimacy and quality time spent together. Excuse me. There are a growing number of same-sex attracted followers of Jesus like Wesley Hill that are choosing celibacy. Many of them are met with suspicion in the church, which has got to stop. And they're met with suspicion in the broader gay community. They are homeless often. A powerful article in the Washington Post recently called Gay Christians Choosing Celibacy, coming from the shadows. And there's a wonderful website I want to encourage you to look at, spiritualfriendship.org, and become informed about people who want to honor God and deal with their same-sex attraction issues. Lastly, we need greater humility. We need greater understanding. We need greater love, folks. Perhaps the greatest words ever written of love, the greatest poem, was written by Paul just a few chapters down the road, huh? In 1 Corinthians 13. 
I encourage you to read it and hold it in your heart. And Paul says, I can give everything I have, all my possessions, even martyrdom for my faith, and if I don't have Christ-like love for others, I'm just noise. Discordant noise. When I hear the tone and words many professing Christians use about fellow image bearers who are same-sex attracted, I shudder. Many times I fight stinging tears, knowing the pain of rejection, hatred, often felt by friends of mine who have same-sex attraction or even living a gay lifestyle. So moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, love your kids. Love your grandchildren that have same-sex attraction. Love and serve those who are living a gay lifestyle near you. Kids, teenagers, love and serve your fellow students with same-sex attraction. Love and serve your neighbors and colleagues at work with same-sex attraction or who are living a gay lifestyle. Love and serve all broken image bearers with a Christ-like love. Dr. Rosari, Rosari, Rosari uh, Butterfield, she's a professor at Syracuse University, or was, and she lived a lesbian lifestyle for a long time. She wrote a brilliant book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she follows Jesus as a same-sex attracted person. She's actually married now to a man. She makes this important point. Don't presume that the worst sin in your gay and lesbian neighbor's life is sexuality. The worst sin is unbelief. My greatest need, your greatest need, the greatest need of our sex, same-sex attracted friends and neighbors and family members is not the disordered sexual desires, whatever they be, may be, the greatest need of all sinful, broken image bearers is to embrace and follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. To find our identity as new creations in Christ with an eternal destiny. A glorious one. Your identity, my identity, my indescribable worth, your indescribable worth is not in what we do, not in what we have ultimately, not in what we desire ultimately, but in whose we are. I'm going to take one more minute. I need to say something, one more thing before I close. I hope everyone here knows about Christ's community, but let me say this explicitly. No matter what your sexual attraction or what kind of sexual brokenness in the past or the present you are experiencing, you are welcome to worship with us and to be part of our community of faith. Because each one of us is learning daily, are we not? What it means to live a surrendered life to the Lordship of Christ and to obey his inerrant word. Everyone is safe here. Everyone is loved here and welcomed here. So come follow Jesus with us. Embrace his life. The forgiveness he brings, the cross he brings, the yoke he brings, and learn from him how to live the life you were created to live, the life you long to live. 
Will you join me in waking up every day saying to Jesus, I want to follow you with every ounce of my being and the beauty of your love and calling in my life. I choose to follow you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior. Make me more like you. Paul says, yeah, and such for some of you. Let's pray. Lord, you are so glorious. Your holiness is so overwhelming. And my brokenness and our brokenness is so overwhelming. But your amazing grace is what gives us hope. It gives us hope.